Um, like Nick said, today we're starting a series on First Thessalonians. And like he said, it's not at all related to the series that the church is doing. But we did decide to do it before we heard anything about that. But still, um, please, if you're not coming to that one, please come to that too. I mean, just because we're covering the same book doesn't mean that there doesn't mean that we'll be teaching the same stuff. Um, there will, of course, be overlap, but the 9 a.m. will be taking a much more doctrinal approach and we'll be taking a much more practical approach to it. Uh, I also apologize for the blank study sheets because Chris is out of office this week and she's the behind-the-scenes hero for pretty much everything. I did manage to make my own PowerPoint, though, but as far as notes go, just uh, do your best. <laughs> If you, if you miss anything that you want to get, just ask me afterwards. So, hey, let's get started with some background information on 1 Thessalonians. So, this was written to the church in Thessalonica after Paul and Silas visited them in the beginning of Acts 17. So, take a look at the first four verses of that. Now, when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. So they were there for three Sabbath days, which means that they were there somewhere between 15 and 27 full days. And in this time, they preached Christ and the crucifixion, and they had a really good outcome. It says that some of the Jews believed, a great multitude of the Gentiles believed, and not a few chief women. Bottom line is that they had more than enough people to start a church. So shortly after, Paul and Silas were chased out of the city by a crowd of angry, unbelieving Jews. And so the believers that they had had to go off of what little training that they got during that time. And so not long after they left, Paul sent Timothy over to Thessalonica to check on them and see how they were doing, which we read in the first two verses of chapter 3. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. So Paul wanted to make sure that they were okay. He was worried that something may have happened that turned them away early, and their labor would have, would have been in vain. However, Timothy returned to Paul with good tidings. The church was doing well. As a matter of fact, they were doing fantastic. They, they were sounding out the word, they were preaching it to the surrounding areas, and living as in samples or living examples to the people around them. And they did have one problem, though, and they seemed to have uncertainty about the future what comes after death, and the like. And that's why we have this letter. First Thessalonians 4.13 says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. So their problem isn't that they were grieving lost loved ones, because that's a very normal and acceptable thing to do. The problem that they had was they were grieving even as others which have no hope. They were sorrowing like lost people. They didn't have the understanding and the, and the security for the future that Christians should have. And so Paul wanted to fix that. 
So he gives them some revelation on the rapture and the return of Jesus Christ, as well as a long list of instructions for how to live in light of that. Having that understanding of what is yet to come and adjusting your life to fit that, to fit that gives you that security that they were needing. So instead of grieving without hope, that they could turn that attention towards their mission. If you're always operating in God's will, then you never need to question the security of your future. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy sent them this letter and made sure that everyone would hear it in 1 Thessalonians 5.27, where he charges the church to read the letter in front of everybody. Then the Holy Spirit preserved the letter so that we could study it today. And we, and we know that it's meant for us because it's written to the church. Paul, Paul is the apostle of the Gentiles and the church, so all of his writings have doctrines that we can safely apply today. If you're unfamiliar with that, basically throughout most of the Bible, there are two people groups. You have the Jews, and you have everybody else who's not a Jew. They're called Gentiles. And all of the books in the Old Testament are written to one of those two people groups. And unless you get that straight, it has the possibility to really mess you up. In the New Testament, though, after Jesus Christ came down, lived his life, died on the cross, rose again, we have salvation as we know it today. And salvation changes you from the inside out, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 puts it. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not. I wrote the wrong verse for that. Oopsies. <laughs> yeah, that was my fault, because I did the PowerPoint. But it's... Um, <laughs> but it's... um. It's one where it tells you that you become a new creature once you're in Christ. Look that up on your own. I goofed up. <laughs> and so now we're introduced to a third people group, the church. And to God, a saved, a saved person is neither Jew or a Gentile, but something else entirely. We are children of God. Galatians 3:26 to 28 says, For ye are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. So with all that out of the way, why did we choose this book to study? If you've been paying attention to the news or spending any amount of time around Jeff Bartel, you've probably heard that things are getting weird and some events seem to be lining, lining up suspiciously close to end times prophecy in the Bible. Not to mention that Laodicea is the last church age, and biblically we are living in the last days. All of that could bring about unease or unrest when it comes to the future. How much longer do we have? What exactly should we be looking for? We seem to want to spend so much time trying to know all the, all the details about something that God says will come like a thief in the night. And I'm not saying you can't know things. We're allowed the knowledge of the times and the seasons, like we'll see later on in the study, but no man can know the day and the hour. But the problem comes when, the object of, when that's the object of your focus, more than fulfilling the mission that God has you on earth to perform. So we'll be taking a look at the authors and the audience for Thessalonians tonight and going over the foundational traits of both of them so that over the coming weeks we can build on that and ultimately, ultimately see how we ought to be living in the last days. So let's pray. And we'll take a look on our passage. Oh, God, thank you so much for just the Thessalonians and the series that we'll be able to be preaching out of it over the next few weeks. And I just pray that you'll help us to see exactly what you want us to have in, the, in this message today, Lord. Um, 
I pray for the study. I pray for everyone who's here, Lord, and that everything that's said will be true to your word and edifying to your body, Lord, and in your name. Amen. <coughs> All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. So first things first, let's look at the authors, point number one. So like we covered before, the authors are Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They planted the church in about three weeks, and then were chased out by a mob of angry Jews. Specifically, I want to look at the love that they had for the church and the work that they did in the time that they were there. All of the churches that Paul had a hand in were special to him. At the start of Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and even the first letter, the personal letter of Philemon, you can find some variation of Paul telling, telling the recipients that he's constantly thanking God for them and always praying for them. And that's also clear in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. But Paul and Silas both were invested in these new believers and wanted to see them prosper, even taking on a fatherly role in their lives. In chapter 2, 11, and 12, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children, that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. So being a pastor like they were is oftentimes very similar to being a father. Later on in his life, Paul gives Timothy a list of qualifications for pastors, and that's where we, and that's where we see it. 1 Timothy 3, 4 and 5 one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Now, one of the things I love about the well is its diversity of Christians. Some of us have been saved for a long time. Others got saved more recently. And while none of us may be parents as of yet, there are a lot of leaders and up-and-coming leaders that are in here. And if that's you, pay attention to how Paul and Silas act as they address the people who look to them for guidance, because this is how we need to be acting to those who are placed under our care. Physical children need, need the love and nourishment of a mother, as well as the leadership and guidance of a father. And spiritual children are no different. Spiritual children, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that they may grow thereby, First Peter 2.2. 2. And as they grow, they need more hearty spiritual food, and as well as the guidance and direction of fatherly examples in their lives. Our God loves patterns, and similarities between spiritual and physical maturity are very clear in the Bible. So, leaders and future leaders, do you know your responsibilities? The next thing that we see is the work that they did while they were there, or rather how they did it specifically. And that was simply because their focus was on pleasing God over man. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 says, But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. 
And because this was their focus, they were able to minister boldly despite persecution, not in deceit, uncleanness, or guile, without flattering words, without seeking glory from men, and holily, justly, and unblameably. Again, leaders, this is a very high bar, but, so, but it's so important when it comes to being an effective minister. Nobody's expecting you to be Paul because he was a special case for quite a few reasons, but God has you on earth to make a difference, and so let's live like that. We have the resources and training available here to take a person from being newly saved to teaching a class. So find where you need to be and do that. And don't be afraid of failure, but learn from it, because experience is the greatest teacher. There are people everywhere that need spiritual parents, and you can be equipped to help them. But just because you've been saved for a while doesn't mean you don't also apply to the next part, because you won't be effective unless you can get the foundations right. So let's look at point number two, the audience. And that's in verses three and four of our passage. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. So we'll go from top to bottom with each of those traits that he listed, starting with work of faith. First things first, work of faith is not saying that faith itself is a work. Romans 4, 5 says, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that, is, that justifieth the ungodly, <laughs> excuse me, his faith is counted for righteousness. And again, in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So faith doesn't count as a work because we don't do anything to earn it. It is a gift. So that means that work of faith must instead be works that are done as a result of faith, which we can find support for. The next verse, Ephesians 2.10, says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So we're saved to do good works. So there should be observable proof in your, in your life that it has been changed by salvation. The way this looked in the church of Thessalonica can be found towards the end of chapter 1 in verses 8 and 9. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had unto you, that how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Their work as a result of faith came by forsaking the idols that they had been serving and turning instead to God. They then evangelized their surrounding area, sounding out, the, sounding out every word of God for everyone to hear. How often is your faith shared, Christian? What kind of observable, observable proof do you have that your life has been changed? And what things have you or should you turn away from to give more time to God? The next thing is labor of love. So the phrase labor of love appears only in one, appears in only one other place in the Bible, in Hebrews 6.10. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. So it's defined here as ministry, 
And ministry in the Bible is the act of waiting on someone in the way that a waiter at a restaurant serves you and attends to your needs. You see that in Exodus 29, 44, where God says, and I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar. I will sanctify also both Aaron and his sons to minister to me in the priest's office. And the job of priests in the temple was to keep everything perfect. They were offering, sacri- offering sacrifices and always, and always being around to serve God and his people. Their existence was serving and making sure that everything was in order according to the instructions that God gave them. But labor of love also comes with an attitude. After all, you can serve without loving. I work at Provia, and my job is to build windows. I don't work there because I have a passion for windows. I work there because they pay me. <laughs> In the Bible, that would be called a hireling. John 10:13 says, The hireling fleeth, because he is an hireling and careth not for the sheep. That's me. If Provia would stop paying me, I would leave, because ultimately, I don't care about doors and windows. But that's not how you should do ministry. The souls of the people that you serve are eternal. Windows are not. If your only reason for serving is because God promises rewards to those who are faithful, then you should check yourself because that kind of selfish attitude that means that you have other problems that you need to root out. The next category is a servant, and they serve because it's their job to. They're obligated to do their work. If your reason for getting involved in ministry is because God commanded you to, then that's better. You aren't in it just to get paid, but you're there because it's the right thing to do. It's all right, not quite the best, but we can work with that. But if you're in ministry because of love, that's where it's really at. To serve because you're a son of God and you want to please your father, that's the real labor of love. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments in John 14, 15. So it's only a natural result. God is our father and we are his children. So the purest form of ministry happens as a result of children who simply adore their father. Next is patience of hope. Patience of hope is the expectation of glorification in the future. The church in Thessalonica might have had problems with some areas about the future, but it must not have gone deep enough to influence this. The Bible doesn't use the word hope in the way that we do today. We would say, I hope it happens, and mean, it would be really great if that happens. The Bible would say, I have hope it will happen, and it means I absolutely know this is going to happen, and I can't wait. Some things that we have hope for is the rapture, which is addressed in this book in chapter 4, 17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We also hope in glorified bodies that we will receive at the rapture. In 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, <coughs> excuse me, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality, meaning that our bodies will 
change from this fleshy thing that we have into an incorruptible, perfect body, like what we saw from Jesus when he rose again. And then in 1 John 3, chapter 2 and 3, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. And hope can be a powerful thing, because if you have that certainty of good things yet to come, then pretty much nothing this world throws at you can stop you, not even severe persecution. If you know the Apostle Paul's story, you can see that happening firsthand. But look at the process of it in Romans 5, 3-5. And not only so, but we hope in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given to us. Do you see it? It starts with the right understanding of tribulations. Jesus commanded us to be of good cheer when we encounter of them, because he's already overcome the world, John 6, 63. And once we get that, then we learn patience from the hardships and get experience from them and hope in what is to come. And once we have hope, we can be unashamed because we become full of the love of God and which ties right back to labor of love. Then lastly, we see election of God. And this is the foundation for all of the other foundational characteristics we've been talking about. Because if you don't have Christ, none of what we covered tonight applies to you. I don't want you to get confused by the wording, though, because the grammar can be tricky. You can read it one of two ways. Either God elected us, or we elected God. There are people out there who would tell you that we play no part in our salvation, and that God is the one who chooses who is or is not saved, and that cannot be farther from the truth. Salvation is a two-way job. Christ did his part when he offered himself on the cross to pay for the price of your sins, and that leaves you to make the decision to follow him and accept the gift that's now offered to you. We see the example of that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 13 and 14. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard from us, ye received it not as the word of men, but it, as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews." They received the, the word of God, so they heard from Paul and Silas the work of Christ, which placed the decision in their court. Then by their choice, they became followers. And another thing those people, called Calvinists, believe is in something called perseverance of the saints. This means that anybody who has been chosen by God to be saved will always live righteously and not sin. But if you look at the verse right before, it says that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you into his kingdom and glory. So why would Paul have to tell them to walk worthy of God if they have no choice in the matter? Clearly, the actual meaning of the passage is that we choose God to be our savior. When God created man, he gave us free will. That free will eventually led us to sin. And that sin placed a barrier between us and God. God is the embodiment of light and holiness, and because of that, sin simply cannot exist in him. 
So he gave man a series of ordinances that involved the transferring of sins onto animal sacrifices to atone for them for a period of time so that man and God could dwell together. But it was incomplete because we are still corrupted by sin. Eventually, God the Son came down to earth as a man named Jesus Christ, and he was the only man to ever live without sin. So when he died on the cross, he was the only sacrifice significant and pure enough to atone for every man's sins. If they would only believe on that and, and accept Jesus Christ as their Lord. So if you're here tonight and you haven't done that, can I ask what's holding you back? Maybe you just haven't heard it before and have questions or maybe you don't know how to. And if that's the case, you can find one of us leaders afterwards or whoever brought you and I'm sure they would be happy to help. You can have hope and security in the future. And this series is going to be all about how to have that. Because if you're always operating in God's will, then you will never have to question what is to come. So I'd like to leave you with one more passage, and I think it sums up everything very nicely. It's 1 John 2, 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. So let's pray. God, just thank you so much for this, and thank you for the hope that you've given us in the future, Lord. Um, thank you for salvation and just the knowledge of how we can live according to your will, Lord, and just always have hope and certainty about, certainty about what our future is and all of the things that you've prepared for us, Lord. I just pray for everyone here tonight, myself included, that we would just go out in this week and just live in that way, Lord, and live in your will, Lord, so that we can just not ever have to worry about what's going on and the world around us, Lord, and just have the peace that you promise us, Lord. I just pray that everyone will just take whatever they had tonight and let's just apply it to their lives, Lord, and that we would all just be able to live a little bit better and live more like you, Lord. Just thank you for your word. Thank you for the well, Lord, and thank you for the worship team in, in your name. Amen.